Welcome to the Tech Podcast and the last one for 2021. If this is the first episode you're listening to, or one of many, a massive thank you from the team at Huawei UK for tuning in. We really do appreciate your company. And if you have any specific highlights, thoughts, questions, queries, or suggestions for future episodes, please do let us know on Twitter via at Huawei UK using hashtag the tech podcast. Since our launch earlier this year, we've been fortunate to meet and interview so many talented people in the world of tech. There are so many to mention, it would be unfair to call out any specific guests. That said, we thought you'd like a selection of how tech impacts diversity and in-person events. But first up, one of our favourites, Andy Wall from Palvi, talking about the flying car that featured at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. So Andy, could you describe to us what we're seeing here today? Okay, so we have two vehicles in front of us. One is in drive mode, which is quite stealthy, low slung, low to the ground, with its rotor system neatly folding on the roof, which is also very useful because it's out of the way, out of the harm, and not going to be bashed by Tesco trolleys or so on and so forth. The second vehicle you're looking at is slightly larger in terms of how it's positioning on the road. So it's sitting higher, it's got pneumatic assistance, so it brings it up off the ground, gives it ground clearance. It's got a huge mast on it and of course a 10 meter rotor system. So that gives you a clue as to what it can actually do. Yeah, and I notice here you've got three wheels on the vehicle. Can you explain the thinking behind that design? Yeah, so there's several reasons, but three wheels essentially is the absolute requirement for most aircraft. If you look around and see your 737 or whatever, your Piper Cherokee, the reason being that a four-wheel vehicle is almost impossible to land, but basically they will squirrel and move around. So as an aircraft, primarily our safety is our concern, so three wheels is the way to go. And of course, we've got great suspension and a very low center of gravity. So on the road, all the fears of the previous three wheelers that existed have all been banished. Okay, so Andy, if we look at the um, first car here, how long does it take? Can you talk me through the process of the conversion from a car to a plane? Yeah, good question. So actually what we do is we'd get out of the car, we unlatch two catches, which then release the tail. We pull the tail out, then we then are servo-assisted for the rest of the conversion. The mast comes up, the rotors are then folded out, the propeller is then appearing from behind the engine compartment, and that's pretty much it. So the process from start to finish takes about four minutes. Wow, so that's amazing, that's incredibly quick. Um, and speaking of speed, can you talk us through how fast, how far and how high does this vehicle go? Yeah, sure. On the road, she's got a speed of up to 100 miles an hour where, where the uh, limits are perm permitting. Uh, 0-60, sub 10 seconds. We have a aviation VNE, so that's velocity never exceeds. So max speed in the air is 115 miles an hour. Cruise speed of about 95, and that would give you approximately 300 miles of endurance. So about three hours. Brilliant. So how do you see the flying car put into action? Well, Initially, I think what we are looking at is the acceptance of this as a genre in itself. And for sure, there are a lot of private individuals that either have work commitments or possibly a potential for going from A to B to C. And the beauty of that being is they can start the journey in their own home and they can finish the journey where they want to be rather than actually starting at airports and finishing at airports. So that's firstly one of the, the uh, actual practical applications. Moving forwards, yes sure we have potential for uh, emergency services, delivery of uh, vital supplies and other aspects which we'll come on to. 
Brilliant. I was just going to ask that actually. So what type of scenarios would require an investment like this? Yeah, I mean, we've had inquiries from people looking to, uh, for example, in Africa, some of the areas which are inhabited uh, you know, via more wildlife than people, that the access to those areas would require aviation. And so starting off in a city environment, providing medical care to inner villages, but having easy access and having a way of transporting them once we arrive, that would be the key for uh, this such a vehicle. Amazing. So there's lots of uh, cool elements of this hybrid car and plane. What are the features and how can they change the future of travel? Well, I mean, what you're actually looking at is essentially a aircraft, an aircraft that actually is driving on the roads, which is pretty fundamental. And seeing that in that context, rather than being a flying car, really belies what it is. So in aviation, we have a, a, an, an article which is often talked about called press on itis. So the, the problem we have in general aviation is that the weather can often turn. We can end up with stormy weather en route. Well, the beauty of the flying car is we can simply divert, land in an airfield, and then continue the journey by car, or vice versa. So I think that that will radically change the aspects of most people's perspective of how to fly in GA. Exactly, there's a huge opportunity you mentioned there. So what kind of demand are you seeing for flying cars? Well, that's a good one. Uh, ironically, the, the biggest demand so far has come from the automotive sector. Um, they're seeing a very great uh, integration of their dream of flying and driving all in one package and that's certainly been the biggest growth. So uh, demand, we initially started selling in the Benelux area and we have hundreds, literally hundreds. We have some famous rock stars even over here in the UK that have signed up. Um, why not? And yeah, here at Goodwood the demand has been absolutely incredible. It's, it's insane, really. Uh, it's taken us by surprise, but um, yeah, everyone everyone seems to love the flying car. Yeah, so it's here, it's happening today. How soon can we expect to see one of these flying cars on the UK roads? Well, the road going permission is already granted, so in theory we could actually drive off. Uh, you know, I've got the keys, where do you want to go? Um, Flying-wise, we're looking at possibly somewhere in the region of six to eight months uh, before the EASA regulations and us have completed our certification. So this time next year, we should be doing flight demos and possibly breaking the world record for going up the hill. Oh, wow, that's super exciting. So tell us what's next? What's the biggest thing that you've got coming up? Yeah, so getting through all of the tape, uh, the red tape, the, uh, the regulations was first uh, for us. Secondly, we're looking at scaling up. So different uh, automotive options, different variations. So possibly going into four-seater variants, uh, looking at different power propulsion units. We're currently running with petrol engine uh, aircraft engines. However, the next stage will clearly be hybrid and possibly after that, some other solution which is coming. Brilliant. We were really looking forward to seeing that come into action. Thank you very much for your time, Andy. Thank you. Online gaming has really made its mark in 2021, and diversity is especially important. We caught up with Donald Harris from Farbridge, who is championing this conversation. A lot of the games that are coming out are almost always have a multiplayer component. Um, it's where you know it's where the trends are going, getting people even more connected and, and delivering bigger and better experiences. And so, um, you know, internally we call it games as a service. That's one of the, the particular um, models that we build games on. And so when you think about it, you think about buying a game once, you take it home, you play it, 
those days are gone, right? You buy the game once, but you're going to be playing this game for years at a time. And we're going to be adding in things to make you want to connect with your friends or people down the street or just random strangers to play and enjoy these games with. So as time has progressed, uh, the trends have definitely gone to just we want to bring more people together in games. One of the problems with the sort of like the rise of the online multiplayer game um, is that all internets are not created equal, right? I mean, I've played, um, you know, competitive first-person shooter games with people, and if you've got a, a, a bad internet connection, then you're not going to win. But also, you're perhaps not going to be um, as drawn to the kinds of game that require a, a hefty internet connection. Do you think that that is impacting the way that we think about development and the way we think about being gamers? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's funny that you, you bring this question up because working currently working on some multiplayer games back at the office, um, there are during our development phase, we pick and choose literally which data that we want to send across the wire. Right. If it's something that we can avoid sending across the wire to, to, to make that transmission faster and therefore leveling that plate, that, that, that field, um, we, we put a lot of thought in, into that. So whereas someone may be on a slower internet connection, that would make us, like what we try and do is we try and plan out, man, we don't need to send every bit of data that we got you know, to, to, to their computer and then have them send it back to us and then back to the server, so forth and so on. So yeah, it's, a, it's very impactful on the way we design our games, um, features that we want to put into the games that we know hey if we have a certain feature we're going to eliminate like a large part of our player base and so we don't want to do that um so yeah it's it's heavy heavy on the mind especially when you also talk about different platforms right so we've got mobile pc um and and your consoles so even those dictate what kind of features we can put into a game as far as network and, and multiplayer so what do you think, um, when it comes to sort of user experience, um, the, the bandwidth and the, the connectivity that you're giving people, it can have a serious impact on their, um, on their experience. Do you see a point at which it will be absolutely imperative that you have to have an internet connection or you can't be a gamer? Is that coming at all? Oh, uh, man. That is a that is a big question. Um, I, in some ways, I do see that. I, I think with so, for instance, if you look at all the the current platforms that are out there, again going back to PC, um, mobile, and console, all of those have a digital libraries where you don't even buy physical games. You need an internet connection to get the game. Um, so saying that there is coming a point to where, you know, you're going to need an internet connection or you're not going to be able to play games, it could be likely. It could be likely. Um, it's just easier for game developers like myself to make games and deliver them over the wire. Um, it, I don't have to deal with physical publishing. I don't have to deal with inventory. Yeah, that day could come. Now, now that you're making me think about it, that day very well could come.
And those whole swathes of the population of many countries will be happy by that, but also many who will be very not happy. Um, but when it comes to game development, let's let's think a little bit about you as a, a sort of a de development studio. Um, the Farbridge choose their talent um you know do you, do you have talent working outside of your office and in which in, in which case what what are the internet connectivity issues that you have to deal with and is that a, a factor in choosing somebody to work with you yes uh well you know we're all going through the pandemic <clears throat> and currently our office uh, we don't have an office we're all remote workers um and that very very much was an important piece of how we were going to set up our now virtual offices, right? So um, most of our team members are within side of Austin, Texas. We do have a, a few folks that are spread out um, around the U.S. And then we had one person that was actually located in uh, Hawaii. And barring time zone issues, um, there were some, some situations to where we had to, like, accommodate slower internet, right? Because he, he, and actually not only was he in Hawaii, but he also lived on a farm. So it's like when you're adding up different difficulties on internet connectivity and being in a rural area and on an island, um, there were times where, you know, he, during his overnight time, he would be downloading large packets of data from us uh, so that he can work on different parts of the game, you know? And so, but it's, it's tough. It's, it's challenging. We can, we can have talent that is located in a part of the world where there's not, you know, not significant internet uh, bandwidth and we can't work with them. It just, it would be impossible. It would, it would be impossible. It was difficult with, with the person in, in Hawaii. So, Yeah. Do you think that um, politicians and even actually parents take gaming seriously not enough as an industry, you know, with viable careers, uh, you know, greater generating tax and income? And, and do you think that we're taking it seriously not enough as a society to really uh, give the rocket boosters that it needs for us to keep generating great games? So taking myself out of that equation, absolutely not enough, right? Obviously, in my household, I take it very seriously. I know <clears throat> that if my kids want to stream or if they want to develop games, I know that they can make uh, a sustainable lifestyle for themselves. I think politicians and, and uh, parents in general still think of games as being fun and just a, a hobby, which they are, and that's that's great and that's one of the reasons why i like making games but um with the rise of esports and things like that and, and the money around those industries i don't i don't think politicians and parents are really taking a strong look at it and saying hey my child can make large amounts of money more money than me you know playing games and and that's that's exactly where we are and you know um ESL is a, is a great, great example of that. Like that, that organization there, the amount of money that they make, the amount of money that the players make, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's a very lucrative lifestyle for sure. And I don't, I don't think people are, are taking it serious enough. 
I just want to round off the talk, though, get a bit more back to sort of like the future gazing about how we can look at fixing the digital divide, how we can bring more people into the industry and how we can perhaps get a wider variety of people more accepting of the idea of gaming as a, as a serious career option and a serious business. So what more can we do to help um, the world reap the societal benefits of gaming? I think with respect to game makers, people who are, who are building the games and developing the games, I think um, there's lots of opportunity there that we can use our platforms to help improve society, right? Um, I think number one, teaching and, and building games that teach, uh, teach good habits and, 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 and outreach into the community. I think uh, going into our communities as game developers, so like a lot of the times when I'm not speaking on technical things like we are today, uh, I go and speak uh, about diversity and inclusion, and I go into different communities and I try and spread the word of gaming and game development and show off the opportunities. I think uh, we all have some responsibility of doing that, right? And so one of the things I used to say way back in the day was that if you want different video games to play, you have to get different people to make them. Uh, and so going out into the community, getting different people, that that's the way that, that cycle works. Donald, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And finally, in 2021, in-person events were back on the agenda. At Connected Britain, we spoke with Total Telecom's MD, Rob Chambers, who was responsible for bringing this event from concept to reality. So Rob, how's it been preparing for a physical event after 18 months of lockdown? It's been absolutely exhausting. It's been very exciting. We've had the largest event that we've ever had for Connected Britain, more than a third larger than the event that we had in 2019, which was the last time we were here physically. We're in a new hall as well. We're in a bigger space. The old small space is actually now our uh, plenary theatre which probably gives an idea of the growth. But the overriding sense has been how pleased people are to be back meeting face-to-face. -face. People have just loved getting back to meeting their colleagues, meeting their customers and their peers and doing business in that way. I couldn't agree more. I got the sense as soon as I walked through the doors of how busy it is here on the ground. It certainly feels like there's a huge appetite to bring live events back. What has been different for you compared to previous years in terms of the exhibitors and the footfall on the ground? I think it's the energy and again maybe that's partly the same comment that people were keen to get back but it's also a, uh, a reflection of where the, the industry's going and gone in the last two years. The relationships between the companies are developing, the relationships between the large established operators and the Orknets have has moved on a gear. It's a lot more collaborative I think than before. There's just a real buzz about it, there's a real buzz about this industry and there's real optimism about this industry. Everyone knows, and I think COVID has reinforced this to people, everyone knows how important that connectivity is in people's lives, uh, whether it be at home, whether it be at work, whether it be working from home, and people are ready to take it on the next stage. Absolutely. And you mentioned there, there's been a huge buzz, and that's been really emphasised by some of the keynote speakers we've had. Which one stood out for you? Oh, wow. There's so many, aren't there? Who stood out to me? Lutz stood out to me from uh, Virgin Media 02. Uh, it's incredible to see him there. I was also delighted that we were managing to get the new CEO of uh, Vodafone UK 
I think I'm right in saying it's probably his first outing in that role, which really does reflect, I, I think, how important this business has come to people. But as always, the regular keynote speakers are still fantastic. Um, Clive Selly, Greg Mesh, they are amazing speakers. They're infused about what they do, and it's always a, a pleasure to see them. Absolutely. Huge names uh, and huge telecoms representation here on the ground. What kind of trends have you seen them talk about and what's new for this year? The trends are probably much the same as they've been. They're still talking about fibre. They're still talking about rollout of fibre. They're obviously talking a lot about 5G, fixed wireless and other forms of connectivity. New trends, though, um, the obvious one perhaps is the, the closing keynote today. There was a lot more about sustainability, which has been mentioned by other people here as well. And probably the other one which I've heard from the show floor rather than necessarily from the theatres is about skill shortages. Now, we've talked about skill shortages here for many years. There's been a shortage of people to actually build out networks for years. But that is perhaps as big a problem post-COVID for the telecoms industry as it is for the hospitality sector. You know, a lot of the people who can build these networks aren't in the UK at the moment and perhaps are having a harder time coming back to the UK. So there's, there's definitely some challenges there. Absolutely. And I, I've heard the same about sustainability and the skill shortage coming up this year. If we look ahead into Connected Britain in the next year, the year after, what do you think will be the big things to come? I guess what we're really talking about is everything being connected. Uh, and I'm not talking about the Internet of Things. I'm talking about the way that connectivity is more and more dominant in people's lives. We're talking about the kind of things we talk about here in connected society, in the connected utilities tracks. We are actually talking about almost every trend that uh, is affecting our lives now. You know, even if you think about things as diverse as electric vehicles, we're talking about networks that have to be connected to a communications network, not just to a power network. So connectivity is, is front and centre. People are talking about it as a utility. It is truly a utility now and it is crucial. And just to wrap up, What's been your personal highlights from Connected Britain this year? My personal highlights, as always, is the people. The people in this industry are fantastic. And just seeing people network, seeing the award winners here in person, picking up their trophies, and people standing around um, last night having a drink, spilling outside the venue into the bars out in uh, Islington Upper Street is amazing. And everyone's so pleased to see it. It is great to have live events back and I don't think this will be the last one. So thanks for your time, Rob. Thank you. We do hope you've enjoyed these highlights from this year, all demonstrating the many ways connectivity and technology touches our lives. Until next time, we look forward to sharing more in the changing world of tech. And don't forget, if you've not done so already, why not subscribe and never miss an episode? From all of us here at Huawei, we wish you a tech field and happy 2022.